You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated and good morning, 840 Highland family. Good to see all of you on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, There are some things that we all hold in common. Uh, We're all alive. We're all human. We all have thoughts and, and emotions. We all coexist on this planet. We all need water. We, we all need food. Um, we all prefer dogs over cats, right? Are we on the same page with that today? Okay, just want to see where the two true Christians are in here today. We've all been hurt, or we've all hurt others. We've all felt despair at some point in in our lives. We've all had days where things just seemed a little hopeless. We've all in this room had a desire for hope. So we're in a series this fall semester called Hope Thirst because inside of all of us, we desire to have something moving in us that, that prepares us to want to wake up tomorrow and keep going. That's kind of the nature, the essence of, of hope that tomorrow will be better, or maybe tomorrow will make more sense than than today does. Let's go quickly to God's Word. You didn't come to hear my opinions today. We've come to hear what God says. So let's go to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. Uh, It's seven books from the end of the New Testament, and I'll let you get there. If you'll just find your way to to 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1 together. This letter of Peter is a universal letter. In other words, it was not written to a specific church that it's having a specific situation, like so much the New Testament is. Uh, the, the letter to the Church of Corinthians, um, or the, the churches, the church for the two letters of Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, the book of Colossians is a letter to the Church of Colossae. They're going through a specific situation, but, but not so here. 1st Peter is a universal letter to all churches. It's a letter to us today as well. This letter would have been read in its entirety before a church. We're not going to do that today. You're, you're welcome. But we are going to take a few verses and see where hope can be found. This letter was written probably at the end of 64 AD, maybe the beginning of 65 AD. Something happened very specific in, in July of 64. In fact, it was July 18th of 64 AD. A fire happened in Rome. You probably know about this fire. Um, Emperor Nero started it. He desired to burn down Rome and to rebuild it in his image, probably with just a lot more statues of him. And so 11 of the 14 districts of Rome burned for three days. Uh, Nero did not fiddle, that's folklore, but the, but the people of Rome, the Roman citizens, they blamed Nero, and rightly so, for the fire. What Nero did is he just passed the blame along to this brand new group called Christians. In fact, remember, Christ had just been risen from the dead about 30 years at this point. And so Nero blamed believers for the fire. There began to, to grow a great persecution against Christians. Nero, of course, as the emperor, was a great persecutor of, of believers. He would take Christians and would, would tie them to a stake in his personal garden and would pour oil and tar over them and light them ablaze so that he could walk through his garden at nighttime with the burning Christians shining shining light for his path. There was a great hatred at this point for for believers. Now, 
Peter is in Rome as he is writing this. So he is seeing as an eyewitness the persecution of, of believers. What does this do to believers? It sends the Christians there in Rome, especially into all parts of the world, that they scatter. There's a great, a great scattering of, of believers as they literally run for their lives. In, in other words, the world was messy back then, just as it is messy today. Let's pick up 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, and Cappadocia, and Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Don't close your Bible. Verses 1, verse 2. Go back and read that again. Peter, we know who's writing this, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the same Peter that, that followed along with Jesus, Simon Peter. Writing to those who are elect exiles. So these are the people who have been scattered, who've been dispersed. They've gone all the way into Asia Minor, and Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. These exiles are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with, with his blood. So Peter starts off here, Highland, by telling us who God is and who we are. Arguably, the two most important questions of life. Who is God and who am I? And once you figure those two things out, life begins to make a little bit more sense. And the first thing that Peter tells us is that we are elect exiles. And God, do you see the Trinitarian view of God here, all found in verse 2? And God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Now, now we tend to identify ourselves by our relationship with our, with our income, or with our race, or with our gender, or with our age, or with our, our chapter of life, our life stage, or we tend to identify ourselves by our relationship to our ancestors or, or the city in which we live or the nation in which we live. But God wants you to understand who you are in your relationship to him. And he uses two words right here to say who we are in Christ. And so if you're a Christian, who's, here's who you are. Number one, you're elect. Number two, you're in exile. Elect exiles. That label just lands on us as Christians. God has chosen us. And this isn't our place. This isn't our, our home. Let's take that word elect, because that's always a fun word to get to preach on Sunday morning. Sometime in eternity past, God chose you. This is a hotly debated topic, a hotly debated doctrine in, in the church today, and it should not be, because you can't get away from this. God chose you. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you. And you can either fight against that or you can rest in that. I personally have chosen to find hope in that. That God has chosen me. He, 
He knows me. He's a sovereign God and he chose you sovereignly according to verse two, to the foreknowledge of God. I can't wrap my mind around thousands of things. Here's two of them. The sovereignty and foreknowledge of God. Why can I not wrap my mind around that? Because I am boxed in by time. I am a finite person, as are you. I am limited. The second thing I have a very difficult time wrapping my mind around is the salvation of God because of this mystery. Why would he choose to save someone like me? Before you amen that, why would he choose to rescue someone like you also? We're all in this boat together. I don't fully understand this. And let me just say, none of us in this room actually understand this. That before God created the fish of the sea and the the land animals and, and, and the birds of the air, before he created the heavenly planets and the stars and the sun and the moon, before he carved out the mountains, before he spoke into existence air and water and fire and wind, before he said, let there be light, he chose you. You are not God's last choice. You are not an afterthought of God. That's where we find our hope. We're called not only elect, but also exiles. Your Bible might even use the word there in verse one, aliens. In other words, we live alongside others, but we are separate and we are different than those in our, in our culture, our world, our city, our nation around us who are not in Christ. And listen, church, there needs to be a difference. We do not need to compromise our alien status. We are misunderstood in the culture. Christians don't fit into the culture. I don't know about you, but I feel that more and more now than I did even five years ago. The, the believer's not a part of, of the nation's culture. Our, our value systems don't match our nation's value system. The, what, what Christians treasure is not what our nation treasures. Our language does not match the nation's language, and that's okay. Uh, somewhere we took a wrong turn when we thought it'd be a good thing for Christians to be popular and well-loved in America. That has never been our identity. We've always been a counter-cultural movement. We, we were made Christians to be exiles. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. This is not our home. And then Peter says, to those who have been dispersed, again, your Bible might use the word scattered right here. The persecution has scattered Christians all around Asia Minor. Just think about this. These are believers who, who've been uprooted. They've lost their jobs. They've lost friends. They've lost their homes. They've lost everything that they knew. And now the Spirit is calling them to live in hope. But hope isn't some blind optimism. We said this last week. Hope is not just wishful thinking. So if you want a, a working definition again this Sunday of hope, here it is. Hope is, come what may, my gladness is secure in Jesus. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord instructing Peter was writing to those who were exiled. Those who are just now discovering that this is not our home. These are people who have lost everything. Again, uprooted, lost their jobs, lost their home, lost their family. And, and the Spirit of the Lord is coming to them and saying, hope really is, come what may, that my gladness, it is set, it is firm, it is secure in Christ. You see, hope is one of those things that really can fill us. Let me just tell you, friends, you're going to be filled by something. Filled by anxiety. You're going to be filled with fear. You're going to be filled with yourself. Filled with what 
people think of you and the concern you have on what other people do think of you. You can be filled with opinions. You can be filled with, with busyness. Or listen, you can be filled with hope. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord is coming to us today and say, you can have that type of hope that says, whatever happens in my life, whatever happens with my finances, whatever happens in relationships, whatever happens in this nation, I'm okay because my gladness is set and secure in Christ. That's hope. Verse 3. I think this is being to stir up Peter because he just busts out with a worship sentence here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bam! Exclamation point. Like something is stirring up inside of him that really has nothing to do, if you will, with what he's writing about. I think the Spirit of the Lord is rising up within him and he just wants to, to shout out a word of worship. Blessed be God. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says. According to his great mercy. We now see the compassionate heart of God. In verse 2, we saw that same phrase, but this time it was according to his foreknowledge. That his, that's his, his unequaled ability. But here we see in verse 3, according to his great mercy toward us, his tenderness toward us. And it's not just mercy, it's great mercy. And that word great right there is not used really often in the New Testament. This word great is, is the Greek word paulus. And paulus means something of a great distance or something of great length. And so Peter is, is describing this word. The Spirit of the Lord gave Peter this word to, to use. The mercy of God here is a mercy that has no end to it. It's like you can look all the way down the mercy of God and you cannot see the end of the mercy of God because it has that much distance, that much length, that much greatness. You can't even see the end of his mercy. It is that great for you. He has caused us. Your translation may say he has given us. This is important, that phrase, he has caused us. This, this means here that you can't lose your salvation. Why is that? Because you didn't earn it. It was given to you, God gave you salvation. Now this, I know it bothers some of you. I don't write this, I just preach it. But here's what it says. God caused you to be saved. Amen. God gave you new life. So you note takers, you write this down. You can't lose what God has done. Did you notice in all of this so far, God has initiated it all. We were dead in our sin and God caused God came to us according to his foreknowledge, according to his, to his great, great mercy. You know, there, there's a song going on in heaven right now. We can't hear it. We can read about it. One day we will join it. It's in Revelation chapter 7. And all the angels and all the elders and all the voices of heaven are singing this song this very morning. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. I hope you're not offended in heaven one day when you're not a part of that song your name isn't. Nowhere does it say in, in, the, in the voices of heaven, salvation belongs to John Durham. That's my name if you're new here today. Salvation belongs to you. This is why we can't lose our salvation because salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. So he has caused us to do what? He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. You can also substitute that word a lively hope, a happening hope, a hope that has movement to it. So he has caused us to be born. Here's our operative word for, for today, really for this fall semester. He has caused us to be born again into this hope that has life to it. 
I said this last week in our, in our English language, we've made that word hope such an ambiguous word. I hope that this happens. Hope I have enough money for this. Hope she likes me. Hope he likes me. I hope we win this weekend. I hope the Dallas Cowboys win today. They certainly will. They're not playing today. And so certainly we, we have the, the, these ambiguous wishes and we've made that into the word hope, but that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a noun, not a verb. You can write this down also, note takers. We've been born into a living hope that is built on a living Savior. That's why our hope is alive. If Christ was still in a tomb, we would have a dead hope. But you see, our living hope is based on a living person, which is why Peter says right here in verse 3, through, we've been born again in living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the proof. That's the power behind our living hope. Well, what is the down payment of our hope? An empty tomb and death that's been demolished by our king. Living hope must be built on someone living and Christ is alive. Verse four, we've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse four, to an inheritance. An inheritance is something that was left for you after a loved one passed away, after a loved one died. It's not something you've earned. It's something that's been given to you, something you probably don't even really deserve, but it's been given, given to, to you. The work of another has been passed on for you to enjoy. One day I'm going to die, and my family will gather, and they will eat fried chicken and mashed potatoes, I'm sure, They'll put me in a box. A preacher hopefully will say a few nice things about me. They'll put me in the ground. They'll walk away. And my inheritance will be transferred to my son and my daughter. They're here today. It'll be transferred to them. You know what they're going to do with that? Buy a car and go to Disney World on what I earned. Right? You're welcome, son and daughter. I'm, I'm working hard. I'm just going to pass it on to you so you can go to Disney World for a week and blow all of the inheritance, all these things that I work for, but that is the picture of an inheritance. You're enjoying something that you did not work for. Let that sink in for a second. Back in 2008, there was a couple, uh, Willis and Arlene Hatch, live up in Alto, uh, Michigan. Both of them 92 years old. They had worked hard all their lives, were very frugal with, with their money. He was a farmer. She was a teacher. And at 92 years of age, Arlene was killed in a, in a car wreck there in Alto, Michigan. Her husband, Willis, died three days later, doctors said, because of a broken heart. They died, had the funeral. They were a part of a small Methodist church, about 70 members of this Methodist church up there in Alto few months after their deaths, church members started getting letters in the mail from the lawyer for the Hatches with a check for $40,000 per church member. They sent the pastor $50,000. Amen. Just keep this in mind right as you're working on your will this week. Let this story really sink deep into your heart as we're kind of thinking about this. All 70 church members received a $40,000 check, something for them to enjoy that they did not earn. They received something they did not work for. That's the exact same thing happening in this passage, Highland. Amen. That our inheritance is just like this. It's not 
our work. It's the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are simply beneficiaries of all that Jesus has done. He has done the work of death and the work of resurrection and has passed on to us an inheritance, something that we did not work for, but praise God, we get to enjoy. Let me just tell you the quality of God's salvation. We see it right here. In fact, it's all in absolutes. Verse four, it will never perish. It'll never spoil, it'll never fade. So you can write these three things down. The quality of God's salvation is this. One, it will never perish. It's imperishable. Death can't touch this inheritance. You know, everything in life contains seeds of death and decay. Um, honestly, it's one of the reasons I always push back on the whole thought of evolution because it goes against the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which states that everything that is natural is actually moving in a downward motion. It's always breaking down, always decaying. It's not building up. But that's not the case with your salvation because your salvation is not natural, it is spiritual. Death and decay cannot break down your salvation, this inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. We also see here in verse four, it'll never spoil or it's undefiled. Sin can't reach your inheritance. Sin can't reach this inheritance of salvation, this inheritance of, of rescue. Sin can't wrap around it. Sin can't spoil it. Here's the third thing about the quality of God's salvation and this inheritance. It'll never fade. Your Bible might use that word there. Mine does unfading. In other words, your salvation never loses its brilliance. This is why there should never be dull worship in church. Because we have a brilliant salvation, a bright and shining salvation. Time cannot affect salvation. But as you notice here that Peter, in describing this, uses it all in, in the negative. It will never do this. It will never do this. It will never do this. In, in Greek, that's called alpha privative. It's a way really of saying, hey, let me describe salvation because the salvation is so magnificent, so towering, it's so vast, it's easier for Peter to say what it's not than what it is. You can write this down. Salvation is the foundation of any and all hope we can possess. You don't have Christ, you don't have hope. If there's no cross of Christ, there's no hope for God's people. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. But when you have Christ and this inheritance of salvation, you have all hope, both now and for all eternity. But it keeps on going. End uh, of verse four. It's kept in heaven. I underline this, these two words in my Bible. For you. It is kept in heaven for you. This salvation. This is why it will not fade. Which is why it will not spoil. It will not perish. Because it's being kept for you. Who by God's power are being guarded. Your Bible might use the word there. Shielded. Why are we being shielded? Why are you son and daughter of God. Being, being guarded by God, I think the answer probably is in the same passage. It's not on the screen. It is in your Bible. Look at verse 18 and verse 19 of chapter 1. Why is our salvation being guarded? Verse 18 of chapter 1, 1 Peter. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited, there's inheritance, but this is your first inheritance, from your forefathers, not with perishable things, look what you've been bought with, not things like silver or gold, but you've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You can write this down. If there's nothing else you write down today, write this down. What God spent his son's blood on, he will keep his eyes on. You've been purchased, Christian. 
by the most precious commodity in the universe, the blood of the Lamb of God. Of course, God's going to keep his eyes on you. Of course, God's going to guard your salvation. Of course, God is going to be a shield about you. Christian, you cost God a lot. It was costly for Christ to save us. And with all that he has spent on you, of course, he is going to keep his eyes on you, his eyes fixed on you. He is going to guard what was so expensive to him. And listen, you are that loved. That Jesus would spill his precious blood. And because of this inheritance we have, this salvation that comes from God, we are being guarded by God. We are being shielded by God. My last thing for you today is this. The truest hope that exists is a hope that is in something bigger and greater than we are. If you have found your hope in something less than Jesus, it's not hope. And let me just tell you a few things that are less than Jesus. If your hope is built on you or on others or on a nation or on a politician, or on a president, or on an economy, you have plenty of reasons to be hopeless. If your hope is built on anything that can be taken from you, or stolen, or lost, or can be destroyed, you really have no hope at all. The only thing, this makes so much common sense to us, of course, the only thing in which we could find hope is something greater than we are. Something bigger than we are. Something undefeated, something capable, something that has stood the test of time and has been the testimony of millions. The only true hope you can have in life is Jesus. And if you have placed your hope anywhere else, it is actually by definition not hope at all. Because it has to be in something bigger and greater and stronger than you. If your hope is not in Christ, you have no hope. But today, you can by faith place your life into the life of Jesus and be able to say, hope is, come what may, my gladness is secure in Jesus. Would you stand with me please? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us today where hope is truly found. Forgive us, God, that we have looked other places. We've looked to ourselves. We've looked to others. we look looked for relationships or, or cash or things, possessions, status, popularity, success. All of those things are fleeting because none of those things are greater and bigger than we are. Jesus, our hope is set in you. And so somewhat like Peter here in the middle of this passage, it makes us, it causes us to want to just say, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This God, according to his foreknowledge, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to come alive with a living, a lively hope and has given us an inheritance that will not fade, it will not be destroyed, it will not perish, because it is being kept for us, secured by God. What Christ has spent blood on, God will keep his eyes on. What 
hope we have in him. We sing together because of this living hope.